Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today at the channel. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I just finished talking with Fabio Lanza about his new book, The End of Concern, Maoist China, Activism, and Asian Studies. This came out with Duke University Press in 2017. It's an awesome book. It's really clearly written. It's really compelling. It's really generous to its objects of study. Um, It's just a great book to read, but also to think with. The interview is very extensive, so I'll keep this very brief and just say the book focuses on the emergence and transformations of the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars. You'll hear a lot about who they are and the context in which um, they were formed and then um, transformed over the course of the interview. But the book is also really helpful in thinking with not just the global 60s, not just what happened to this particular group of scholars and their publications um, during and after that, but also thinking with some of the basic categories and practices that are still very relevant to Asian studies scholarship today. What is China? What could it be? When we go to China as uh, scholars of Asian studies, what is it we're going to do, right? Like what what is to be gained from the way we do the research and the kinds of research that we do in order to tell the stories that we're telling? This isn't to say there's something wrong with that, right, fundamentally. Instead, there's a really wonderful self-reflexivity that comes from this book and that I think, at least for me as one reader, invites the reader to engage with a similar self-reflexive process in thinking about what we might take for granted in our practices and how maybe to not take those things, concepts, practices so much for granted in order to be able to imagine possible futures and possible futures as a responsible, thinky person, right? How do you bring together the need, the desire, the importance of being a responsible human with your practices as a scholar. So at least for me, this book was amazing in helping think through all of that. But you can decide for yourself how you want to think with it. And to do that, I will leave you to the interview to come. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm here today with Fabio Lanza to talk about his new book, The End of Concern. Welcome back to the podcast, Fabio. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. And thank you for making time again to talk with me about another book. Well, thank you for having me, Carla. It's a pleasure. First, so we've spoken before, Fabio, so I'm not going to begin with the typical what brought you to um, the field of China studies because listeners can um, go to that podcast and listen to that. Instead, let's get right to the book at hand. 
So the book focuses on the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, or CCAS sometimes we'll use to refer to them in the conversation, and the associated Bulletin of Concerned Asian Scholars that they published. This was an organization, in the words of the book, of young professors and graduate students who were vociferously critical of U.S. policies in Vietnam and in Asia in general, and also of the complicity of the field of Asian studies with these policies. So the book traces the history of CCAS to shed light on, in the words of the book, a larger moment of transition in Cold War international politics, the history of Asian studies in the U.S., and connections between scholarship and activism. Okay, and so listeners will already sense that there is a huge amount of stuff in here that's of importance and interest to how we do history and to how we function and have functioned as scholars um, in life and in the academy uh, today. So we'll talk about a lot of that. But first... Let's talk about how you came to this project, Fabio. Early in the book, you tell us that the path leading to the volume started with a telephone conversation. Can you bring us in by talking a little bit about that? Yeah, it was a strange beginning. I was, um, I was writing my first book. I was on sabbatical and writing my first book, which has nothing to do with this on the May 4th movement. And um, I got a phone call from uh, Alessandro Russo, who was... Uh, um, my former mentor in Italy and a friend, and who invited me uh, to a conference on China in the Cold War. Uh, and I replied that I didn't know anything about China in the Cold War, that I was writing a completely different book, and that I didn't know what to write about, even if I had time to write about something. And he offhandedly, apparently, suggested that I should write something about the bulletin. And uh, I assume we must have had conversation about that before because the suggestion doesn't didn't strike me as completely, you know, out of the blue. Um, and so I did. Eventually, I went look for the microforms of the bulletin uh, at the University of Arizona Libraries, and uh, they're now online, thankfully. Um, and read through the entire, you know, uh, first ten years probably of the bulletin. Um, looking specifically at China, how China figure in that, in that particular enterprise. And I, I eventually I submitted a proposal for, for the paper, got accepted, and went to Bologna to present the paper. And to my uh, astonishment and complete uh, leading to massive terror, I found out that uh, not only I was to present a paper to about, about China and the Cold War, to people who actually knew something about China and the Cold War, but that two of the uh, early members of CCIS, uh, Bruce Cummings, professor of Korean history at uh, Chicago, and Marilyn Young, now the late, unfortunately, Marilyn Young, professor at NYU, were present. <laughs> so I was terrified. And I gave this paper, and they were incredibly nice and incredibly supportive, and you know, eventually asked me, you know, are you going to work on this? Are you going to do something on this? And I thought, well, I don't know. And, and then I kept thinking about it, and eventually I thought, well, somebody should do this. <laughs> and uh, maybe that somebody should be me. I thought it would be a, a, a quick project. I thought it would be a, a project about that intersected a, a different trends that I was interested in, global Maoism, the history of Asian studies, um, and... Uh, in China in the 60s. And uh, 
So I did. It came up that it wasn't quick, but uh, that it did intersect a lot of, of these teams. Mm-hmm. So this is your second academic monograph, is that right? Yes. Okay. So as someone else who's also in the midst, um, hopefully the late midst of that stage of, you know, working on the second academic monograph, um, I want to ask you a little bit about that because that's a particular academic stage and scholarly stage that we, we tend not to talk about as much, right? Like there's a lot of emphasis right now on helping people get the first book out, um, on getting tenure, but then what happens afterwards is this like big morass. And I think a lot of us spend a lot of time kind of flailing around trying to figure out um, how to do that. Uh, you've clearly been really successful at that. And so, um, but what I'm interested in is the particular part of the craft, Fabio, where you decided that there was a book in this, right? So you've talked about how you came to this topic, um, how you decided that you wanted to keep working on it. At what point or like kind of what was the process like where you decided that this was going to be a book project? And can you talk about that a little bit? Actually, it's it's that's a that's a very very good question because I thought about the second book. I thought about the you know the ten years it takes to write it, twelve years, the fifteen years, the twenty years that you know, uh, sometimes it takes to write the second book because you don't have the pressure of tenure, and because you know sometimes you embark in projects that are um, way too big. And I, I actually uh, was embarking, and I'm still embarking a project that is probably way too big. But that's my third one at this point. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I picked this was precisely because it seemed to be doable. It seemed to be um, possible. I didn't start to do, thinking of writing a book originally. I, I, I thought you know, a couple of articles would come out of this. But um, I went to the archive in, uh, in uh, the Wisconsin Historical Society in Madison, which holds the entire archive of, of, of CCIS. And now all the archives I added to that pers- private archive that I found. And I, I, I was amazed by the, the production of, the, of, of these people, this, this relatively young uh, scholar and activist, how much they wrote, how much, how much curis- personal correspondence was there. And I thought, well, you know, this might be a, a short book. And, and, and I went with that um, it was it was it was the the amount of sources that were available that that allowed me to do that and also the, the I, to be fair the urgency of writing a second book mm-hmm. uh, it helps that all the material is in English here and I I feel I feel bad as a Chinese historian but that that's true all the material in this book is actually uh, uh, the sources are all in English uh, which makes it for much faster work uh, I, I must say yep. Well, one of the things, just to kind of defend the decision, right, to to work on China, but without necessarily using Chinese sources, is that one of the things that I think this book um, does really beautifully, and one of the points or constellations of points that it makes really beautifully, is that scholarship should be self-reflexive, right? And there, and we'll talk about how that played out in particular contexts over the course of the conversation. Um, but reflective and reflexive in terms also of what the categories that we're studying mean, and here. Um, I mean, the book does great work taking apart maybe the assumption that to work on China, we know what it is we're working on, and to work on China means to use Chinese language sources, right? I mean, so like one of the big questions at stake for both the people you're writing about, but also for, I think, the 
the book itself um, and the work that the book does is what does China mean? What has it meant in the past? What might it mean in the future? And how do we responsibly attend to that as an open question in being responsible, productive scholars and people? Yeah, and I think and I think the experience, uh, as you say, but I think the experience of these people who had to write for very practical reason about China at the distance uh, because they couldn't get there, uh, and and also writing the book itself, which was an experience of writing about China at the distance, the, the double levels of a meta experience, writing about people who brought China at the distance, and also writing about this thing called China. And trying to problematize what it meant and what it means is specifically sort of a, a, a crucial part of, of, of the experience, and it's a crucial part of, of, of what actually interests me in writing the book. I, I I have a specific interest in historiography, and so in many ways it was a way to think critically about the constitution of of, of China itself, and and you know in the larger sense of of the field of Asian studies and. and and how we think, how we got to the place we are now, basically. Uh, what's 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 our history, um, uh, both as a China specialist and Asian studies, as part of a and as people that are part of a field that's constituted uh, in a specific um, in a specific way. Uh, and I also, if I can add, I think this is a book you should write with tenure. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's not the first book. Mm-hmm. No, nobody nobody should write this. <laughs> A book like this as a first book. Say a little bit more about that. Why do you say that? Uh, I mean, I agree with you, but I can't really. But why don't you articulate um, well, why you think that's the case? And I'm not saying just because it's risky, and I don't think it's that risky, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I think because uh, it deals with, uh, with the field itself. And it deals with uh, people who are still alive, uh, some of them active, uh, some of them not, uh, and and people who have been the teacher of somebody else who's still active. Uh, so it's it's has to do just with actual people who and actual people in the field, but more profoundly, it has to do with the constitution itself of what the field is and how it came to be in a series of, I think, in many ways, contradiction that are still. Or tensions, if not contradiction, they're still part of um, what Asian studies is and um, what China is uh, today, or what China has been at least in the last 50, 60, 70 years. Um, uh, so, so I think it requires a certain um, groundedness <laughs> in, in the field, a certain safety to write this book. You, you have to be free to, you know, well, risk that the book will irk somebody or will not be published or something like that you know it, it's, so it, it, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a book that requires at least the safety of thinking freely about the the about the field uh not not, not necessarily to to get people mad at you but just to think <laughs> freely uh, you know which is a luxury you have after tenure and I think also, I mean, I would kind of maybe rephrase um, my initial statement to say, I think this is a book, it's really hard for me to imagine someone could write, yeah. um, right, before getting tenure. And in part because there's such a, again, a self-reflexivity about, 
like a kind of a critical perspective and an ability to step outside of the history of your own experience to look at it and try to imagine how it could have been otherwise and to not take for granted a lot of what a lot of us tend to take for granted, right, when we're in the thick of it, right? I never questioned when I was in grad school why I would go to China um, as somebody who was studying Ming China, right? Like it, it never occurred to me to think, okay, why am I doing this? It was just something that you did, right? Check, right? Like I spent time in China. I'm interested in this. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do this. Meanwhile, all of my sources, right? Did I need to go there? To get the sources that I'm in? no, actually, um, but these sorts most, of questions. Most pretty modern historians don't need to go to China, <laughs> right? So this, these questions of why it is that we do what we're doing, right? Stepping away from our training and being able to look at it critically and pull it apart and imagine how it could have been otherwise, and really do what we do as historians. This takes a certain degree of maturity, and it's really hard to get that distance when you are in the thick of it um, on the kind of conveyor line. Uh, yeah, and fighting for your life. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It takes like a certain amount of a feeling of safety, and not necessarily because of the inherent risks, right, of the book, but safety um, to be able to have the kind of space, personally, intellectually, um, to sit back and to to think capaciously in certain ways without the pressure of, am I going to be able to afford dinner tonight? Yes, exactly. And also, it's, it's, it's a risk. I mean, there's the problem of sources, too. I mean, this is a book, as I say, completely on, on English uh, sources. And I will, I'm obviously, I wrote the book, so I will defend the, the fact that people should write these books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a book that does a contribution to the field. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have written it. Uh, but I also think that if you had to write this as a first book, you will get into trouble precisely mm-hmm. because you have to show the chops of dealing with uh, China, uh, and which means also, rightfully so in many ways, Chinese sources. There is also a very pragmatic uh, reason why this is not the first book. So talking about sources um, actually brings us, I think, really nicely to um, something that you mentioned in the introduction. Um, that seemed really important, right? So in the introduction, you talk about the especially personal nature of the book, and you talk in particular about the role of oral histories, right, Um, in creating the study here. So Fabio, can you talk a little bit about that, the significance in your experience, and really anything that you'd like to share about that process of doing oral history for the book? Yeah, the the personal nature uh, is... is, uh, is as I said at the beginning, complicated because I'm not, and I was never used to, to do this kind of uh, uh, relatively contemporary book. My first book is on the teens and twenties, so people I was talking about were dead, uh, and uh, you know, it was there was no oral history to be done. Um, in this book, I found myself uh, interviewing people of different kind, people that were in the field, people were outside the field, and uh, I got to be friends with some of them, uh, specifically one of them who eventually died while I was writing the book, uh, Sandy Sturdivant, and, and I, who left me, her, you know, archive was not at the CCS archive, is now at the, the Wisconsin Historical Society. Um, I was so that's that's part of the personal grind of this book. But 
the other aspect, the aspect of oral history was particularly complicated because, you know, I, I've, I've never done oral history before. I've read about oral history, of course, and I've read oral history. And the problem with oral history is what oral history basically does is measure the distance between the today and the past uh, and measure the uh, today's interpretation of the past. It's not a recounting of the past. I mean, archives are not particularly better. They are recounting of sort, but they're recounting at the time, usually, or they are primary sources of some interpretation of facts. Um, or, or a view, or specific view into facts. The oral history is a very specific, personal uh, recounting of the present, this, the, the distance of the present from the past, basically. And in particular case, given what I think is the political, intellectual shift that happened in between the past and the present, the past of these people and the present of these people, that was even more... Uh, even more relevant. So what you got from oral history was usually an attempt by uh, former conservation scholars to make sense of this distance. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and the way they made sense were very different. Uh, and very personal in many ways. Uh, you know, from and some of them came up in writing, some of them came up with you know, oral interviews. Um, but the, the, the there was, in some cases, a disregard. In some cases, actually, a profound pain. Uh, in the case of Sandy, a, a really an attempt in the very last years of her life to make sense of what had happened uh, at the very end of this project. Um, and other people, it was like uh, a shrug of the shoulder or, 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 or the idea that things are continuing in the same way. So it, it's it, oral history, in a sense, is is a particular double uh, double-edged sword. Uh, and and uh, I uh, I interviewed a fair amount of people, but at a certain point, I thought there was not much else I could get out of of the oral history. Thankfully, I had an abundance of of written sources at the time. I had an abundance of of you know both published sources and an enormous amount of uh, internal correspondence and documents of that kind, internal documents, if you want. Mm -hmm. But the oral history part was, was uh, a time, uh, a time really kind of painful, uh, not to, or, or, or puzzling, you know, either puzzling or painful in the sense of, of an attempt, of, of, of precisely in measuring this, this distance, I would say, it's measuring the distance between a political past and a political present, or an intellectual past and intellectual present, and I I found that that uh, uh, that particularly stressful. <laughs> That's the only word that comes to mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think when you're asking people to make sense of something or when they're trying to make sense of the act of or the practice of making sense of is a very personal practice, right? It's a very personal act. And this is um, that tension 
between or the felt tension, the actual tension between the personal and the scholarly, right? The scholarly or intellectual and the political. This is a tension that the um, the entire book traces. And we get this even from the first chapter. So let's dig right into the chapters now. I think this is a nice transition. So chapter one looks at the founding of the CCAS in 1968 in Philadelphia. It follows the early years of the CCAS and pays special attention to the intellectual and also the scholarly debates that the committee waged with some major organizations and major figures in the field. So it opens with an account of, a vo- or the chapter opens rather, with an account of a volume published in 1971 called America's Asia. And it considers the notion implied in the title, right? Like, what does it mean to be America's Asia? Now, this was the second volume to appear under the name of the committee, right? The CCAS. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit for listeners who may not be familiar with this about the CCAS, right? Can you talk a little bit about the context in which it was founded? If this was the concerned Asian scholars, what were they concerned about and how did that concern play out in these like very early years? That was my question when I first encountered them when I was a young college student and I pick up the bulletin of concernation scholars and like what are these people concerned about? <laughs> um, and I, I was a, I was a, I was stupid but but you know, I was also young. Uh, they were concerned about a bunch of things but primarily uh, as, I, as I stress in the book they were concerned about the Vietnam War. Uh, 68 is is probably the well. 60, 68 is 68. It doesn't require that much uh, more to say. But 68 is also the the the, the apex of of the Vietnam War in many ways. The tent offensive. It, it's the year when the Vietnam War, if if wasn't clear before, comes to full. Uh, Realization in the consciousness of the American people. Um, so they were concerned about the Vietnam War. They were concerned about uh, the carnage that was going on in uh, in Vietnam. They were concerned about themselves, of course, participating in their carnage. I know all male um, of a certain age were uh, available for the draft, and they were concerned about, um, in general, more in general, U.S. policy in Asia. Uh, Japan, China, India, uh, and they were concerned about the their own field, uh, specifically the collaboration, impl- direct or indirect, implicit or explicit, by their own teachers in the formulating those policies. The whole idea, the idea behind the CIS, one of the main ideas is that the field of Asian studies was uh, complicit, and had been complicit in the constitution of U.S. Uh, policies in Asia, which they consider to be genocidal. Rightfully so, by the way, <laughs> they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, genocidal and, and criminal. Um, so, so, so it was a multifaceted uh, attempt to uh, uh, participate in the anti-war movement at large, um, to demystify uh, general assumptions about um, Asia, um, specifically China, but Asia in general, uh, to the public at large and to the field in the specific, and to criticize and rewrite uh, how uh, the field of Asian studies treated Asia. So to write a new form of Asian studies, a new Asian history. And I mentioned that, of course, Vietnam was the catalyst uh, in terms of 
the war, of course, and what was urgently at stake at the time. But that, in my opinion, and that's my bias as a China historian, China, Maoist China, was the positive element in this description. It was the, uh, the, the positive example, the positive, not, not model, the positive light in Asia that showed a, a possible alternative to uh, U.S. imperialism, but also to uh, capitalist development or Soviet development and humane uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, forms of economic and uh, uh, cultural development. So let's go with this. Um, this is very much um, a focus of the first chapter, and it also threads through the entire book, right? You talk about in the book the experience of Maoist China as being fundamental in shaping the perspectives of CCAS scholars. And here, importantly, um, you make the point that Maoist China wasn't a model, right? It was instead, um, and this is in the words of the book, um, this was not a model. It was because of the recognition of Asians as sub Objects capable of political and intellectual discoveries that the concerned Asian scholars could frame their own intellectual and political contributions. Okay, so this becomes really important because these contributions were really importantly different from the dominant strands of inquiry in Asian studies at the time in a number of different ways. It's also really important because this kind of awareness of subject positions, right, and sort of subjectivity is also a way to bring in and to thread through the story of the concerned Asian scholars here with a kind of story of larger interests in subject positions, in subaltern studies, right, that also comes up in the book. So we get also a kind of history of these concerns in a very localized context. Okay, but to start, Fabio, um, in what way Basically, can you talk a little bit about the significance of Maoist China um, and sort of the way that it created or thinking with it created the possibility of thinking with and thinking about these subject positions? Yeah, well, the, 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 the shift for me, which I, try, I describe as, as a shift from object to subject, is... Um, uh, what happens, you know, in, in, in what happens in China? It happens with Vietnam too, but specifically with, with China. Is that in this period, and probably for the first time, uh, at least in, in in the U.S. and in, in such a large uh, setting, uh, Chinese people, Asian people, but specifically Chinese people, become move from object to be studied to subject with whom you can think together. People, people you can actually think together with. Um, subject of their own politics, subject of the intellectual development, subject of deciding their own uh, destinies, if you were. Instead of, you know, people who do things in a weird way that we need to study because they are kind of strange. Um, so uh, the, the example of Maoist China, I think, resonates in a, in a, in a series of different ways. Uh, and and I, in, I used CCIS as a, as a way to look at how Maoist China played in the, the, the so-called long 60s or global 60s. Uh, it's, it's widely recognized that Maoism was a uh, unifying element in, um, in the 60s, in the long 60s, in, in you know, all over the world, from, from Africa to, to Europe, um, to the US, uh, and South America. But, but what I think it's, it's, it's lacking, it's that it's still framed as a, 
uh, infantile fascination. Uh, so, you know, French Maoists, for example, Italian Maoists are mocked, and sometimes rightfully mocked, for falling in love with this distance paradise of poor people. Uh, you know, the utopia of communist muralize in the Far East, and going on these trips and sort of, you know, falling in love and coming back with these stories. It's not wrong, but it misses the crucial point in how Maoism actually works. Maoism works as a vocabulary, as, as a way of interpreting certain and identifying certain crucial issues that were common uh, in different situations. Uh, for example, uh, the Cultural Revolution identifies the, the, one of the problems, which is a separation between manual and, and, and mental work, and try to bridge these two. These were problems that were common and discussed in, in, you know, in France and Italy and South America, uh, as in the U.S., as like these people. The, the connection between politics and knowledge, the connection between the production of knowledge and production itself, uh, the crisis of the uh, parties, uh, the, which are the you know the location of, of of politics at the time, especially the leftist parties. It's not by chance that in the sixties all the parties, all the leftist parties, seems to be into massive crisis, and the Cultural Revolution sort of identifies this crisis better than other uh, than other cases. Uh, uh, the, the attempt to define in the period of high Maoism, and failed to define, by the way, but attempt to define an alternative economic model of development that was not simply based on larger growth or larger output, but also in a reframing of the relationship of production and so on and so forth. So all these things were crucial outside China, and they were identified by people in the message of global Maoism. Now, as I tried to argue in the book, as you need to say earlier, this was not a model to be followed. People were not, and, and the CCS are very clear about that, and some of the French Maoists I cite in the book were very clear about that. There was not a model to be followed, you know, and copied. It was more of an inspiration, a possibility. The idea that if it was possible there, it's possible somewhere else. Uh, and, 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 and if you want a massive critique of the existing system. Right. And the book makes it very, very clear. Um, and this is um, made very forcefully, right? Uh, and by that, I mean very effectively, I think. I think I find it very compelling that Maoism was a theory um, that importantly found its expression and realization in localized practice, right? The importance of localized practice and the relationship between and the tension between theory and practice. Um, it's very much at the heart of, it's a tension um, that's really at the heart of the book. And we see that tension play out. Um, and it's a generative tension in the next chapter. Okay. So that we could, I, I'm just going to say for listeners, we could easily spend another hour just on chapter one. So in moving along, um, I mean, really there's so much to talk about here. So we'll try to though, pick up some of these threads, um, as we move on. Okay. So this idea or this tension that you brought up between kind of theory and practice, right? How to sort of be a scholar and how to act as a responsible person in the world. This is very much a tension that I think is still with us um, as people in or who are identified with the Asian studies field. And it's very much a tension that animates the next chapter. 
So as um, the next chapter, chapter two, makes clear, the CCAS took Maoist China seriously in rethinking, in the words of the book, the very position of the scholar as an intellectual and political being. And this chapter considers how the CCAS tried to integrate their intellectual and political lives and bring together their scholarship with their activism. Again, I think this is a... um, something that resonates a lot with a lot of us and that will probably resonate right now for a lot of listeners. Now, the chapter looks um, very closely at the relationship and tension between thinking and action, scholarship and politics, career and activism. Okay, So can you talk um, here a little bit about how what you see as some of the most interesting and important ways that working through and with these tensions shaped what was going on for um, the committee scholars in this part of the book. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think that's a crucial tension that maybe you know, and let me be very uh, self-reflexive again. Um, I think it's a crucial tension because I because I believe it's a crucial tension. Um, I think it's it's. You know, it's borne out by the sources, but I also believe that, as you say, this is a crucial tension for people today. For anybody who's a scholar, a scholar of Asia, but I think anybody who's a scholar is and who tries to, you know, to keep a political side next to a scholarly side. How do you integrate? Um, how 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 can you be a radical in the classroom and a radical outside of the classroom? And that's. Um, and that's that, that's the question that that they ask, and never solved, by the way. That's that's the problem that they ask. I I believe that this was a, a tension that sort of traversed the entire history of CCIS, and I try to demonstrate that um, that they kept going back to what it meant, and and you know, and this and it starts. I, I trace it from a very early uh, debate in, in in the summer of '68 uh, when uh, they organized uh, a Basically, what was a workshop uh, at uh, at Harvard University in Cambridge uh, uh, to basically come up with uh, what would be, be the, the book America's Asia, um, and and they there are minutes of some of the debates that they have at a time, and most of them deal specifically with what are we, how can we do this, what what is a scholar of Asia which has also a political consciousness. Um, Going to be, going to do. How can we be at the same time, you know, uh, intellectuals in the classroom, teachers within a system, and uh, and you know, activists outside, contributing to what they call the movement at the time, you know, the, the larger political anti-war, but also you know, largely revolutionary movement, if you want, of the sixties, contributed to the politics of the sixties. Uh, and there's a question that's that's never solved because it deals with the, 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 to a different opinion of time, and some of them were uh, more uh, moderate, and they just assumed that doing scholarly, doing good scholarly work, uh, basically writing radical history, was enough. And uh, and other people didn't think so because. Um, they believe that the system itself, that the system of production of uh, scholarship, the life of the scholar itself, everything that frame what the scholar is separated him or her, mostly him, but him or her, from the uh, 
from politics, mm-hmm. in many ways, from the larger politics. And, and therefore, what was needed was a massive change. Um, there is a continuous refrain in the sources, and it lasts throughout, almost throughout the period, of, of the idea of living separate lives. You know, here's scholarship, that activism, here my intellectual life, here my political life. And, and the need to, to, to solve this, this schizophrenia, to, to, to just put the two lives together. And it continues failure of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, and, and, and they, they identify some of the crucial, I think, problems of, of you know, living academia in many ways, especially at the time when there was the, the politics was so vivid and real outside of it, and inside of it too. Uh, so I think that's that's part of, of the issue. And in that sense, they do resonate with the larger, you know, criticism of, of the 60s um, uh, at the time. And I connected this with, you know, what we talked about earlier, the subject, the emergence of new subjects. Um, uh, and these, these subjects were subjects that, that claim for themselves by political action uh, to be able to sort of, you know, talk for themselves. Uh, they were the, you know, the workers in China, the workers and students in China, but also the workers of May 68. And, uh, and, and you know, um, mm-hmm. non-resistance um, movement and uh, national liberation movement all over the world, uh, you know, civil rights activists within the U.S. that claim for themselves the ability to speak for themselves, by themselves, without the mediation of somebody else, be it the party or, in this case, the intellectual. Uh, so if other people, if these subjects can speak, and the capture of speech is one of the sort of category of, of the period, then what are the intellectuals to do if rec- they recognize this ability of other people to speak and think? Well, they might have to do something else, which is not speak and think for them, but act maybe, practice get involved in other ways. And the search for these particular ways of getting involved was always well, trouble and complicated. And in the end, I think not successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if my history of CCIS is, you know, correct. And we actually see some of that playing out in the next chapter, right? In terms of the question of how to get involved, um, part of that becomes about as of the summer of 1971, how to get involved in China, right? Um, So in the summer of 1971, the CCAS becomes the first scholarly organization allowed to visit the PRC. But it's actually a subgroup from Hong Kong that goes, and this creates all kinds of issues and tensions that um, Chapter 3 traces that ultimately, you know, result in rifts in the committee that raise the issue of what it is they're actually doing in China. Like, how do you navigate between friendship and investigation, right? And who should be going and what exactly should they be doing when they're there? Um, So, Fabio, there's so much we could talk about, again, around these issues. For you, what's some of the most interesting um, stuff that's happening here in terms of the conversations and the tensions around these trips to China and that navigation between friendship and investigation as it's shaping the committee? Well, it's it's a tension that... Well, first, I, I let me 
uh, I don't want to be too theoretical here, but the the the, the I, this is this is the chapter full of stories. Actually, <laughs> it's a chapter full of this massive internal uh, crisis, to, to, for lack of a better word, um, but also of, of this sort of strange experience of going to China in seventy one, and then the second group goes, the second larger group goes in seventy two, uh, exactly at the time of the uh, Nixon. Uh, Sort of reproachment, reproachment with China, uh, and and so in this very crucial moment in which you know uh, the, the international politics shift massively, uh, especially for for people who are sympathetic to China and uh, anti-war in Vietnam. Uh, but the, so, so I want to point out that the, the chapter is actually sort of try to tell this story as well. But uh, the the. The, the, the crucial point to me seems to be that these people ask themselves the question, and, and they're not the only one. I, I trace uh, other travelers to China at the same time. Um, ask themselves the question, why go to China? <laughs> what do we need to know? And, and if we go to Maoist China, if we go to this place, which is politically, we believe, very close to us, which we recognize as politically close, uh, politically, you know, very germane to what we are looking for, uh, but is also physically distant because nobody has ever access to it. Nobody, no, no Americans basically, no organizing those Americans had access to it. Uh, what, what are you trying to get there? How, how can we know China? And I mean, I. I kind of like that they ask themselves this question. Uh, and as in the previous chapter, I don't think they have a good answer for that. And I'm not sure we do have a good mm-hmm, answer. Exactly. Uh, but but it's, the, the, it's a questioning at the time. And, and the answer, some of the answers that they and other people provide, which are you know, not obviously great and not definitely, but they're interesting. I mean, the, 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 the fact that scholars, uh, and, and I, I cite the case of Michel Loire, for example, in France, who was a, a Chinese poetry specialist, uh, and, 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 and of the CCIS, who are you know, uh, scholars of, of China, of Asia, that to go to China not as scholar, to, that you understand China today, to understand Maoism, you need to divest yourself of the scholarly trappings and go there as a political, sympathetic person. Uh, it's very problematic, obviously. <laughs> uh, but also points to the fact that um, the, the, the framework of scholarship at the time was, for them, and I think in part rightfully, an impediment to understand. Uh, Maoist China. Um, so, in many ways, what I I try to take out of this chapter, among other things, about the distance of memory, how we how people remember the experience, how people make sense of the experience, is also for for, for as a, as a person who's today working on on the history of the PRC, I I try to take out a lesson for you know or, or at least. A, a, a voice of criticism about how do we know Mao is China? And how do we know China in general? How, how, 
what does the experience of going there give us? Uh, is looking in the archive enough? Uh, is, um, is political understanding necessary? Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they argue at the time that it was, that, that it was absolutely necessary, that you need to be sort of sympathetic to that enterprise, otherwise you will never understand it, otherwise you will be trapped in, uh, in a scholarly framework that will make it completely meaningless. Uh, I don't think that those are questions that are, uh, that are, that we, I think there's, like, let me rephrase that, I think these are questions that we should ask ourselves today. We should keep asking ourselves today, in an even a completely different situation. Anybody who works on China, especially on contemporary China, should you know keep asking themselves, how do we know China? Mm-hmm. And, the, and how do we study politics in general? That's another larger question. Totally, and and we'll um, definitely, I think, get to this in a little bit more detail um, in a moment, but you talk in the epilogue, right, about also, as I understand it, the question of what is it that we're also trying to understand when we understand China, right? Like what China is, how China is, how that concept does work has also changed over time and it changes over the course of the book. And that's one of the um, histories um, that is sort of emerges from this story, right? It's not, at least as I read it from the perspective of one reader, it's not just the story of this Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars. It's also the story of how and what China has been in that context and what it could be in the future, right? And and we'll um, we'll get to that as well. So this is just to flag um, just before <laughs> before we move on and we talk about what happens after Mao, right? And, and a lot happens after this. The fact that what it is even to work on China, um, it's not just the the shape of the work that I think the book helps productively to problematize. It's also the how we understand what the object is that's being worked on and worked with and how we could understand that. But before we get there, we have to get to um, sort of what happens after or immediately after uh, Mao dies, right? And so chapter four um, looks at what happens to the committee in post-Mao China, right? There's this debate that you look at within the editorial board of the bulletin that leads to the publication of two special issues on post-Mao China in 1981. And that debate allows us to kind of get into some of the arguments, some of the tensions um, that come to a head and ultimately that lead to um, some real rifts um, in this group as a result of this. So Fabio, um, let's kind of start maybe with the conceptual. Okay. And then we'll get to, we'll, we'll sort of weave the practical in here. Um, I mentioned this because you make the point here that there's a bunch of stuff that happens in the Deng era that's changed, importantly changed from what was happening in Maoist China. And some of that is the way that two major concepts are understood and framed. And there's really important consequences to this. Those two concepts are class and culture, right? And the way that these are understood differently really has ramifications for the committee. And I think ramifications for us today. So that is a long rambly way of getting at the question. Fabio, can you talk um, about the way class is transformed in this post-Mao culture and how it actually plays out practically for these concerned scholars. Yeah, the 
that's 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 work of other people. There are other people have done better than I did, but I cite them. Um, the, the idea is that um, one of the effects of the late Maoist period, uh, and it, I would say one of the effects of high Maoism all over the world, is the complete crisis of the concept of class. Um, in the sense that uh, it becomes, uh, I mean, the c- class is crucial for the Cultural Revolution uh, and is crucial for identifying, for, for the 60s in general, it's, it's one of the, uh, you know, crucial character. But then we can argue that the term entered into a global crisis and the people who argue about class afterwards follow this crisis. Um, at the end of the long 60s. And, and China is specific to that because in the Cultural Revolution, the term, the, the, the Cultural Revolution was waged on class basis, uh, depending on which class you were, you were a good or a bad person. But class was also defined in many different ways at the time. There were contradictory definition of class. Your family background was your class, but on the other end, your revolutionary attitude was your class as well. And people thought, literally fought uh, as red guards, you know, often split between, you know, the good background people and the background people climbing both belonging to the working class. Um, And so class becomes, in a sense, meaningless, or not meaningless, but completely saturated and completely explored as a term. I mean, um, Alain Badiou speaks of the saturation of the term class by the end of the Cultural Revolution. And what happens with Deng is that Deng say, well, screw class. We don't actually care as much. Uh, it's it's the, the the pragmatic revolution. It's you know the complete negation of what has happened before. Class is not that important. Let people let people get rich. You know somebody will get rich first, but you know who cares? Um, and and so for 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 people in the in the long sixties, and I consider CCAS. Uh, Part of this, by the way, the CCS were not Maoist. I, I, I stress in the book that mm-hmm. it was not a Maoist organization. They were just, you know, responding to, to Maoism and influenced by that. Uh, but, you know, people who were influenced by that find themselves, and, and especially people who work in China, find themselves in this specific conundrum, which is uh, they had developed an entire analysis of China based on these contradictory understanding of the concept of class and culture, but it's another story. And and they find themselves by the by 78, basically, by the early 80s, in which this concept of class becomes uh, completely useless. Yes, and China changed so much in different ways. As, you know, a China that, that's, you know, which has mm-hmm. completely different categories of understanding, or at least where categories don't work the same way. Uh, it's not the language of class is gone, it just doesn't mean the same thing. But also China, that all of a sudden, is accessible. So you can go to an archive, you can do start doing anthropological fieldwork. So if you're a scholar of China at the time, what do you do? I mean, seriously, how do you stick to your guns and, and denounce the betrayal of, you know, of, of the, the old politica, politics that you, you know, were supportive? Or... Live with what's happening now and and um, uh, protect, preserve your access to, to sources, and uh, and 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 so the debate in many ways that you were mentioning uh, in in behind uh, the eighty one double um, special double issues on 
on post-Mao China, uh, sort of traces this, this contradiction. And I was fortunate to, to have this material, uh, uh, to find this material. Uh, Sandy Sturdivan was one of the editors at the time, kept all our correspondence, and so it was available. Um, and, and, and I didn't know about this, because if you look at the just the, the, the two issues, they are surprising, but you don't see the, the entire sort of fight behind it. Um, and in which the editors are calling uh, all these authors to sort of, you know, what are you doing? I mean, <laughs> you, you can't just gloss over this massive change and assume that nothing has happened. Uh, you cannot just say, you know, that the communes are prospering. They're not. They're being shut down. You can't just say them that, you know, the, the discoveries of Maoism are continuing. They're not. Um, and, and so the, the, there is this call to keep them honest, which eventually doesn't really work, but but it reflects specifically this this enormous this the, the the tectonic shift that happens at the end of 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 the Cultural Revolution, which I try to say is not a tectonic shift that happens only in China, but it reflects a massive uh, shift, if you want, um, all over the world uh, with the end of of the so-called Long Sixties, basically. Mm-hmm. And you talk here, I think, um, really helpfully about another group, right, that we might learn something from if considering it in conversation with the example that you're talking about, and that's the French Maoists. Um, so, Fabio, can you talk a little bit about that? What can we learn here from the comparison case of what's happening with the French Maoists at the same time? Yeah, I, I was, uh, when, I, when I started writing the book, I wanted to do a uh, off and off split, but then I realized it was impossible, and that there was too much. That the CCAS uh, were, were central in this book. So the French Maoist, uh, the, the various organization of French Maoist, I, I, I don't do justice at all to, to all of them, not even close. But the, the example of the French Maoist, uh, uh, I, I deployed basically as a way to expand the, the, the view of, 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 of what was happening in the global 60s, of the influence of Maoism beyond CCIS, but also to provide sort of a theoretical um, side, if you want. Uh, because the, 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 the Committee of Exhumation Scholars and, and, and the Bulletin were excellent scholars, but they were not specifically very theoretical. Uh, their analysis was... was um, uh, empirical, pragmatical, but they, they didn't go into large theory. Uh, the, the French Maoists did, instead did, um, and so and, and there's some intellectuals that were massively influenced by French Maoism, like Louis Althusser, Jacques Rancière, and, and Alain Badiou, which I cite in the book, which provides specifically the the, con- the theoretical context for the influence of of Maoism in this period. So. The, 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 the deployment of French Mao is why I, I, I think I'm very clear to say that these two things are really different, that, that the archipelago of, of French Maoist organization is not even close to CCIS. But I think the, the, they offered this theoretical sort of mirror to the discussion that was going on within CCIS. So that's, that's how I use them. And in a sense, I also tried to use some of these people at the very end of the book to show how 
these people, uh, the thinker especially, try to remain sort of more faithful, if you want, to the discover to the Maoist period. What did mm -hmm. they got out of the Maoist period? The 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 the, the crisis of, uh, for example, of of the concept of class, was one of them. Uh, the 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 critical. The movement towards equality was another another one. The, the, the presupposition that, in the case of Rancière, for example, that uh, equality starts with the recognition of uh, the subject ability to uh, think, everybody's ability to think, uh, which clearly is 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 a is a derivation, a discovery that comes out of the Maoist of the, of this long sixties period, the, the emergence of new subjects, and, and so on and so forth. So. Uh, that's how I deploy uh, the, the the French Maoist, and it might not be always refined, but I think it's it provides this sort of a theoretical angle that otherwise would be lacking. Oh, I, I loved it, and and a parallel universe right now. We're just wrapping up a version of the podcast that we're doing right now. Except I'm asking you all these questions about Jacques Rancière and the way you use his work, and I'm asking you to talk for like three hours about that, which I totally could have done, and I've been holding back from doing that because I want to make sure we get to the chapters. Um, but I think it's actually a really useful part of the book. So thank you um, also for incorporating that in the book. Okay, so now we are um, almost to the conclusion of our conversation, and we're coming to the epilogue of the book. This epilogue traces major changes in the field of Asian studies in the 1980s and 90s, and it considers the role of the CCAS in helping to create the conditions for those changes. Now, one of the major changes that happens, and you trace this through um, what happens in the bulletin, and as the bulletin becomes critical Asian studies, you also um, trace kind of other developments here. The way China was treated changes in the post-Mao years. Now, we've been dancing around this um, topic for the whole conversation, in part because just selfishly, I'm interested in this, right? Like in this part of the book. Um, you talk here about the way that China is remade into an area. And you talk about the treatment of Asia and China specifically as, quote, an archival preserve. Now, this resonated so much with me in terms of my experience in, um, you know, in grad school and sort of learning about what it was to study China, um, etc. Um, and I think it's really important. So Fabio, did you want to talk a little bit about that, sort of the ways that China was remade and how we might understand China in other kinds of terms moving forward? Yeah, uh, that's that's the, the part of the book that's going to get me into trouble. But <laughs> no, I, I, I felt it was, it was needed at the end to sort of conclude and get to well, I'll get to as close to today as possible. Uh, and by the way, this criticism of, of the field as, as it is today and the criticism of reinsertion of China as a, as in the field, as a field, as an archival preserve, is nothing new. I mean, people like, uh, people like you know, Harry Arotunian have done it for Asia and you know, the entire position mm -hmm. enterprise is, is basically um, based on <laughs> this criticism, or, among others. But, but, this one. So it's nothing particular. You know, I just try to sort of tr trace what happens to um, uh, to some people in the bulletin and trace up and what happens to the bulletin and then what happens when uh, by the 90s you have another shift in, in larger um, uh, in the larger field which is the, the sort of the, to put it 
bluntly, I don't have a better way to say the, the introduction of theory, uh, French theory specifically. But yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I have the same feeling that you have probably that the China is uh, an archival preserve for many of us. You, uh, and, and I find it shocking uh, looking at this period in which there was a serious attempt to think of China as a coeval place, like a coeval, politically coeval place. Uh, and how quickly this dissipates, basically. Uh, <laughs> and China comes very quickly back. And this is, this is I'm, I'm, I'm saying this as with no specific, you know, it's, I'm not saying anything bad about specific people. I, I'm not accusing <laughs> anybody. I'm just saying that sort of that's a trend of the field that I see. Uh, and it happens for a reason I have to do with China specifically. Um, but also with, I would say, global politics. Uh, the China shift from being a, a for br briefly being a subject, China and Asia, and Asian people, see from briefly being a subject, subject you talk to, subject you exchange impression to, whose subjectivity you take into consideration, to being um, a field, an object, somebody you go mine for research and uh, you know, dig out these res these these resources, these as nuggets of facticity. I think it's the, the word I use, um, and and then the, redeploy them into your into your research. Um, and I think it's well. Clearly, I'm not satisfied with that, and I and I and I and I think that's um, incredibly problematic because. Uh, uh, and I try to show through, through various examples of how China has been reconfigured to various attempts by you mm -hmm. know, famous uh, scholars like you know, uh, Paul Cohen, Philip Huang, and, and Joe Ashrick and others, um, how eventually you always end up in the same place. We, you always end mm -hmm. up with a, uh, a China that's understandable only by its own specific uh, uh, you know, sort of mechanism, dynamics, uh, China was always separated no matter what. Uh, and, and even today, even, in, even in, in, in the contemporary area studies, when you know, China is very much present and very much you know, existing at the everyday level, you know, in, in stuff we buy, in you know, global power, I, I don't think that that's particular, that, that particular um, uh, attitude has, has changed, actually. Uh, it, it's still a, a field and object and, and things like that. So basically, at the end of the book, I try to redeploy the theoretical uh, uh, the theoretical shift of the field to uh, sort of try to say um, that we should recover that specific China of the '60s, not 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 in the specific form of the '60s, but the idea of a China that. Uh, uh, is a uh, a place with subject which would would could share an intellectual and political horizon, um, a, a location mm -hmm. not of certitude but of always uncertain, you know, definitions, and that uh, we could engage uh, in in a, in a completely different way with China. That we could engage with this China, which is not simply a as I say, a physical, a cultural location uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a recover from, from this 60, that particular sort of engagement. 
and I'm not saying that clearly, but no, no, no. I, because probably I'm not clear about it either. And, and I think it's totally clear, and I think it's also really clear um, in the book as well. Um, and I'm, I want to just flag this for listeners: um, the entire book, even though you're very careful and very specific about making sure that we understand that this is about a specific context, right? Um, and this, I think, um, is very much part of the general spirit of, um, at least for me, being reminded throughout the book that. It, one of the lessons to take from the way that the thinkers you're talking about worked with Maoist theory is that it was also about localized, always about localized practice, right? Not like Mm -hmm. placing theory uh, unproblematically on a context and then just like letting it run. At the same time, I think um, throughout the book, there are moments where we can take lessons from the case study you're presenting to us to be more thoughtful about our own subject positions as scholars and particularly as scholars of Asia today. And I just want to flag that um, for listeners because that's true throughout the book. But in particular, I think there's a lot to think with in this epilogue that explicitly invites um, that thinking together with the case um, in, a, I think, a really helpful way. Yeah, I mean, I... I... <laughs> I don't think I say that in the book, but you know, all books are all history is, is the history of the present. Right. Um, so you know, it's, it's the the book was a reflection, and I think I mean that's another case where it's personal. It's a reflection of uh, what we do now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I have a very fraught relations with um, uh, uh, Asian studies in general. Why I half of my, of my Line is in Eastern studies and empirics. So, but I have a relationship with the field. The field is is a problematic field, and I mean the book sort of briefly traced the history, or at least hints at the history of how the field was created as a government enterprise. Um, and I'm not saying it's that anymore, but the, the legacy of studying Asia and China is you know I'm not I'm not obviously not the first one to say this. There's a, there's a long history of criticizing this whole thing, but uh, I mean the. the 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 book was also a, an engagement with the field of Asian studies, but also an engagement, as you mentioned earlier, with with uh, the the present situation of how to be a scholar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think all these questions are are. I mean, the, the reason I one of the reasons I wrote this book was precisely because it's a question that, you know, are I think for me at least are alive today. How to study China? How to go to China? How to understand politics? And uh, um, uh, what's our history? What's the history behind us as, as Asian scholars? But also, you know, how in general, how to be a scholar, uh, how to be a, a scholar who is uh, um, interested and active politically in its, in its, in you know, whichever way within the present system of academic um, constraints and structures and so on and so forth within the present organizations. How can you do that? Is and you know, and I think it's. I, I the book doesn't offer an answer to that, just to be clear. Don't, don't go looking for a, a quick, like, let's do you have to do this and this and this. There's no such thing, but I think the book poses the questions and sort of deals with people who actually try to answer this question seriously. And I think from that experience, we can get something, um, 
uh, both in, 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 a, in terms of failure, in terms of successes, but in terms of just experience for, for today, for our own uh, scholarly practice today. So Fabio, there's clearly a lot more to talk about, right? But now that we're at the conclusion of our conversation, and thank you so much for making time for this, is there anything else we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? I don't, I don't think so. Um, uh, I, I, one thing, I, I want to point out that um, the book has, has a lot of, of voices in it. Uh, uh, I was one of the good thing about writing this book was that towards this massive archive, and I try to be faithful to the archive in the sense I try to put their voices out there, and uh, so there are stories and there are voices and the voices are vivid and intense and feisty, uh, which I think is an interesting. Uh, I mean, it's, I think it's interesting itself to see this. Um, as a mirror, as, a, as a, the explanation of political activism in action, basically, of you know scholarly activism, if you want, in action. So I, I uh, yeah, that was something I wanted to just point out. And what's next for you now that the book is out? My actual second project, <laughs> the, the second project that I never that I never uh, engaged with because uh, I wrote this book instead. Um, I have a, a working title, uh, which is Revolution in the Quotidian, the History of the Maoist Every Day. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a book on China, <laughs> with Chinese sources, hopefully. Um, and it's a sprawling project, which has changed so many times at this point, that um, uh, f- for archival reasons that I cannot even uh, think straight. But to put it very simply, um, uh, the, the goal of this book project is to put the everyday as a political category at the center of the Maoist enterprise. So the idea was that um, for Maoism, it was not just changing the economy, the state, um, the you know the structure of, of, of you know production, but it was actually to change the everyday, to change how people's practice in their minute details, that was the goal of the revolution. Unless you do that, uh, the revolution will fail. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and then, so the point is that how to investigate how that happened, if that happened, and uh, how it failed, how it succeeded, what reaction did elicit. So the whole idea is, it's, it's a Beijing-based project to look at specific moments in which the state or the people try to intervene into the everyday, producing radical changes, um, uh, and so uh, or trying to produce radical changes, and why sometimes they change produce the opposite effect or don't work, or uh, and uh, yeah, and why the everyday is important. So instead of basically, it's it's an attempt to. Um, uh, it's it's a reaction, if you want, to the a new trend in PRC history, which is to write uh, the history of the grassroots movement, the, gra- the history of the grassroots. Sorry, the grassroots. The idea that there is a reality out there that now we can verify with sources, and that's the you know separated from the state. 
separated from the politics of the state and that you know we can sort of trace it um, and mm, mm, I, I want to push this forward if you want uh, and, and argue that uh, maybe we, we should look at the everyday in a more theoretical and political way as truly the center of the Maoist project um, it may be the place where the Maoist project fails more radically. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't written the book yet, but um, but sort of a, of a pushing this forward in a, again in a more theoretical way, if you want. And uh, yeah, so that's the project. Well, I love that. Best of luck with that. It's um, really clear from reading this book how that is in conversation with the book that we're talking about today. And so let's make a tentative date to talk about that one too, eventually. Yeah, <laughs> Even if, you know, like regardless of when it is. And in the meantime, Fabio, thank you so much for taking time away from that to talk about this with me today. Well, thank you, Carla. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for spending time with us today and have a great day.